we are in a dark place in Scripture right now. The Last Supper was not a lighthearted time for Jesus and His disciples. There was a heaviness in their celebration of the Passover, a seriousness about that night when Jesus instituted communion as a memorial of His death. And today we move from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus agonized in prayer to the extent that Dr. Luke writes, His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And then next week, we'll be living in the passages that tell of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus, a day that was so dark that nature itself mourned. And biblical history records that for three hours there was a total solar eclipse. But all of the darkness of the upper room and Gethsemane and Calvary was forever invaded by the light of the empty tomb, and we will all be together in one great service of worship at Ford Center to celebrate the resurrection just two weeks from today. Dr. Bob Arntz is an emergency room physician at St. John's Hospital in Joplin, Missouri. He told me about a man in his mid-40s who had been brought to the hospital one morning by ambulance. He had been rear-ended by a garbage truck, and there was nothing that they could do but officially pronounce him dead on arrival. As Dr. Bob assisted police in finding contact information for the family, he found a note in the deceased man's shirt pocket. It was a to-do list. It said, gas in car, drop-off clothes at cleaners, sign Billy's report card, pick up charcoal. The man had no idea when he arose that morning and got ready for the day that while sitting in his car at a stop sign that morning, he would be killed instantly by a distracted truck driver. He had not the slightest thought of dying and going out into eternity, yet this, this was his reality. Our younger daughter, Camille, used to work for a private airline company called Avjet in California. It was her job to schedule the pilots and the attendants and making all the arrangements for the chartered flights. She actually walked the crew and the passengers out to the plane with her clipboard and checklist. In 2002, she had a flight scheduled for 16 people bound for Aspen, Colorado. It was a post-graduation trip for a dozen UCLA graduates, paid for by one of the girl's fathers, who was also flying with the group. The plane was weather-delayed, leaving Burbank, California, and so it did not get into Aspen in time to land before the airport closed for the night. And when it was announced to the group that they would, they would have to land at an alternate airport and drive to Aspen, the girl's father went ballistic. And his rant was so intimidating with loud threats of financial and legal consequence that the pilot was intimidated and decided to go ahead and put down in Aspen. 
a decision with tragic consequences. The plane crashed, killing all 19 people aboard. Some of you may have read about it. $15 million in cash settlement was paid out to the affected families, and it would have been more, but the father was found to be partially liable. Now, I promise you that this group of mostly young adults on that plane looked forward to a weekend of partying in Aspen. They had no idea that they were going to die that night. And yet, it was their reality. Well, in our Bible passage today, it is still Thursday evening of the week. The Last Supper is ended with Jesus and the disciples singing a hymn, walking out through the narrow streets of Jerusalem, out of the gates of the city, 200 yards across the Kidron Valley, and then up the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus knew the end was near. Jesus knew what His reality would be. In just a few short hours, He would be beaten and bruised, scourged and shamed, and then hung on a cross to die. He knew. He knew what was just ahead, and He knew He had to prepare Himself for it from the inside out. And so we read about it in Matthew 26 beginning with verse 36. Then Jesus went with His disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to them, "'Sit here while I go over there and pray.' He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with Him, and He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, "'My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then He returned to the disciples and said to them, "'Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer.'" Has there ever been a time in the life of Jesus when we have seen Him struggle like this? I think not. I can't think of one. 
But his humanity is on full display here in the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestles in prayer with the awful fate of his messianic mission. He had this one last night, one last night to teach his closest followers, one last night to prepare them for what was coming. And he knew their loyalty was fragile. Earlier, Jesus watched Judas leave the table, knowing that he would soon return with a band of soldiers to arrest him. And he knew that all of the disciples would scatter, and even Peter, perhaps his closest friend, would deny him three times, a third time with a curse. But what, what was it exactly that Jesus dreaded so much that He agonized in prayer three separate times throughout this sleepless night. Was it the aloneness He felt because of the betrayal of Judas, because of the denial by Peter, because of the abandonment by the disciples? No, I don't think, I don't think that was it. Was it the raw agony of the physical suffering, the beatings, the scourging, the hours of limitless pain on the cross. No. No, I don't think it was that either. So was it the emotional pain of watching his poor mother grieve as her innocent firstborn son died so horrifically right before her eyes? No, I don't think that that was what was on his mind as he prepared himself with deep and intense prayer. Well, then what was it? I think his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death because he knew he was going to become the embodiment of sin. You know, the sin that we tend to take lightly joking about it, sometimes being entertained by it, casually indulging in it. Jesus dreaded it. This is the cup that He so feared, the very thought, the anticipation of the pure holiness of God actually becoming sin brought unimaginable anguish to His soul. It had been prophesied in Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I know you probably remember a TV reality show called Fear Factor. So what was the most fearsome and degrading thing to the contestants, other than parading around in their swimwear on national television? What was it they hated the most? <laughs> I would guess it was, it was eating or drinking something disgusting. <laughs> so if you were to imagine the most vile the most foul-smelling liquid in a cup in front of you, infected with leprosy and mad cow disease and syphilis and AIDS and cancer. Can you imagine yourself drinking it? 
digesting it. It's hard enough to watch somebody else do it. Can you imagine a contaminant like this literally, literally becoming a part of you? It doesn't even come close to what it was like for the Holy Son of God to become sin. It was so repulsive that God Himself turned away and Jesus in anguish cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this heart cry represented separation from God, which is the essence of experiencing hell. And this, I believe, is the very moment that Jesus feared the most. And just as Jesus dreaded the hell of that cup, I think people today dread the thought of hell, the reality of hell more than anything, so much so that a lot of people choose to disbelieve it. They're just going to deny it. They're just going to push it away from their conscious minds. But you know, the ultimate curse that you hear pronounced by one person on another is, you go to. You see, that tells me that the ultimate dread of humankind is hell. That's why Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, 39 and 42, oh, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if it is, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. I submit to you that Jesus was not afraid of the isolation. He was not afraid of the humiliation. He was not afraid of the torture. He was not afraid of the death. He lived his life from age 12 fully aware of his role in accomplishing his father's plan. And in the end, even in spite of his dread of drinking the cup and becoming sin, Jesus got up from his place of prayer and charged his disciples, rise, let us go. And he was ready to put his head down and move through the hours ahead with supernatural strength. And from the Garden of Gethsemane forward, he never wavers. Maybe more than, maybe more than the cross or the tomb. Gethsemane was the real battleground. It was the real battlefront. Jesus fought the battle and won it on his face agonizing in prayer. Or when he comes from his place of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, from that point on he dramatically personifies his own prophetic words in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So Jesus was able to emerge from the emotional distress and the relational disappointment and the spiritual despair with supernatural strength. His Father did not take away the cup, but He fortified Jesus to drink it. And Luke's account in chapter 22, verse 43, records that after Jesus finished praying, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. 
And later, when they came to arrest him in the garden, Jesus asked them, Who is it you want? And John adds this detail in John 18, 5 and 6. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. Jesus said, and when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. He was clearly in control from Gethsemane forward. So let me turn the corner today. What is it that you, right now, are experiencing or dreading? Have you had? Are you in? Do you foresee a Gethsemane experience? Now, it's probably not going to be in a literal garden. Chances are it'll more likely be in an operating room or maybe a courtroom. But sooner or later, each of us will find ourselves in Gethsemane, crushed, broken, fearful. So what might it be for you? Is it today? Is it, is it, feelings, is it feelings of loneliness, feelings of isolation? Feelings of rejection, betrayal. Maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's injustice in the workplace. Maybe it's humiliation. Maybe it's abandonment, loss, death. Whatever it is. Whatever it is, Jesus knows and He has experienced it. Personally, and here's the thing, no matter what your Gethsemane, by persistent prayer and humble submission to the will of God, you can emerge from your Gethsemane supernaturally empowered, emotionally strong, spiritually secure, just like Jesus. Here's my message in a single sentence this week. You can come out of your own Gethsemane with confidence and resolve. I like the way Mike Leiter outlines this passage we're studying in a sermon that he calls, When the Going Gets Tough. He says, when the going gets tough, get others. <laughs> Jesus knew what He was up against, and He didn't try to fly solo. He got help from others. He took three men to pray with Him, men to whom He felt a special closeness. There is something about the power of partnership when you're in Gethsemane, more evidence of the value of small group connections. When the going gets tough, and it will, get others. Don't try to go it alone. And when the going gets tough, get open, get open. Jesus openly shared His inner struggle. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. He was honest about how He felt with His confidants. He wasn't image conscious. He didn't worry about appearances. 
He didn't try to appear macho in the eyes of the other men that were a part of his band. Get others. Get open. When the going gets tough, get on your knees. Jesus got on his face. Maybe you belong on your face. Maybe you belong on your knees. Prayer on your face. Prayer on your knees. I believe physical posture in prayer really can matter a lot. Prayer should not be our last resort. Friends, prayer should be our first resource. Jesus prayed persistently three times, and in the Hebrew culture, to do it three times indicated emphasis. It indicated significance. It indicated importance. And when the going gets tough, get obedient, Jesus said to His Father in prayer, Your will be done. He was clearly saying to His Father, I'm going to trust Your will. I'm going to obey Your will. I am conforming my will to Yours, Lord. We always have the option when we're in Gethsemane. Some people choose to go it alone. Some people choose to shun God, to push God away, to even resent Him in their hour of crisis. It's a mistake. We need to embrace the ethic of John Samus as he wrote the lyrics to the well-known hymn in 1887, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So I wonder, I wonder what part of the message of Gethsemane you might need as you move into your present or your future Gethsemane experiences.